Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We are progressing through the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, we have been in this section on the sacraments. There are two sacraments, sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we have been looking at those as Pastor Dan has uh, led us through the catechism's teaching on that. And we come to an article, uh, actually a question, in Lord's Day 30, uh, which is somewhat um, uh, controversial and somewhat contentious. Uh, And we'll read that in just a moment. We want to read God's Word, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Speaking of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, that's the surrounding context here of these chapters, he, that is Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then looking at the catechism, if you care to uh, read it, it's on page 886 in the back of the hymnal, uh, the left-hand column on the left-hand page, question and answer 80. I'll read the question and ask you to respond with the answer. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Strong language, I think you would agree, and uh, we'll be looking more closely at it momentarily. Three points to the sermon this morning on what I have uh, entitled as Sacraments Distinguished. First of all, the distinctions to be made. Secondly, the declaration made by the Lord's Supper and the denial. So distinctions, declaration, and denial. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, and this is recorded for us in John chapter 19, uh, it is finished. The Greek uh, in which uh, John wrote is actually just one word. It is tetelestai. It means paid in full. It is finished. Nothing more is to be done. We sing about this in the words of the familiar hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I know. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, To begin with, some distinctions. You may or may not be aware, but you should be aware, that the Heidelberg Catechism is a historical document, and as such, it is addressing 
um, issues, matters, theologies, controversies of its day. Um, and at the time of the Reformation, there was much controversy about the sacraments. If you've been paying attention uh, in, through Pastor Dan's recent series in the Catechism on the Sacraments, you know that there are 15 questions dealing with two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Fifteen uh, questions are devoted to the sacraments. Why? Because there was a great need to bring biblical clarity on the matter of baptism and the Lord's Supper and to distinguish what it was that uh, the Reformed believed as opposed to other sections of the Christian church. At the time, there were the Reformed, the position is recorded for us in the Catechism. There were Lutherans, uh, which is uh, distinguished by this teaching as well as a number of other things. I'm not going to elaborate on that, uh, at that at this point. The Anabaptists, and by that you should not understand Baptists, all right? Anabaptists were not Baptists of today. Anabaptists were the Radical Reformation. Uh, they were uh, anarchists almost. Uh, Anna is again Baptist, baptized again. Uh, they didn't accept Roman Catholic baptism, said you had to be baptized again. Um, and uh, there's a lot to be said about that, but do not confuse Anabaptists with the Baptists of today. So you have Reform, you have Lutheran, you have Anabaptists, and you have Roman Catholics, all right? And all were teaching different things with respect to the sacraments. So here, specifically in question and answer 80, uh, we're dealing with uh, the distinction or the difference, if you will, from a Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper and a Roman Catholic understanding. Now, just generally, let me uh, basically give you uh, a summary here. When it comes to the sacraments, you can never either have too high a view of the sacraments, that is that they actually save by participating in the sacraments, you're saved, or you can have too low a view of the sacraments where you don't refer to them as sacraments at all, and we'll look at that momentarily, all right? So just as a generalization, you can be either too high or too low. The reform position takes the via media, all right? Uh, a too high approach um, goes beyond what the Bible teaches, that is, that sacraments actually save. They don't. So that view goes beyond what Scripture teaches. A too low view of the Bible, uh, of the sacraments, I'm sorry, a too low view of the sacraments leaves out things that the Bible actually says about sacraments. So uh, that's just a generalization, all right? Uh, so uh, there are many who think, and even today, that baptism saves. Baptismal regeneration, for example, this is certainly taught in the Roman Catholic Church, some segments in the Lutheran Church, and some segments of other uh, denominations. And that the Lord's Supper saves. That's reflected in the teaching of uh, the Catechism here, all right? Uh, the living and the dead do not have their sins uh, forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. So the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a means of salvation, all right? Um, and much more could be said about that. I'm trying to generalize, all right? So there are distinctions being made in the Heidelberg Catechism from other segments of uh, the Christian church at the time of the Reformation, and those are applicable uh, broadly uh, still today. Significant to note, 
uh, is a distinction between the individual and the institution. Between the individual and the institution. If you read the catechism carefully, it's uh, certainly correcting and condemning the teaching, but it is not condemning the teacher. This was not the case with the Roman Catholic Church, for example. The Roman Catholic Church said that if you did not believe this teaching about the Lord's Supper, then you were accursed. You were anathema. The Council of Trent, they were never rescinded by Vatican II in the early 1960s. They were reaffirmed. So uh, the anathemas of the Council of Trent continue to stand. They condemn people. The catechism just condemns the teaching. It doesn't go so far as to say the teacher. So it's legitimate to make, and it's a good thing, to make a distinction between the individual and the institution. We disagree with this teaching, but it does not mean that the entire uh, entirety of the Roman Catholic Church has no Christians in it. Of course there are Christians, and I think most would concede that there are true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. If you don't believe that, you're mistaken, all right? And that's the propriety of taking, uh, making a distinction between the individual and the institution. In fact, J. Gresham Machen, uh, who was the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church involved in the uh, modernist controversy in the early 20th century at Princeton Seminary, said we have much more in common with Roman Catholics than we do with theological liberals. At least they believe the Bible. At least they believe in a bodily uh, resurrection. They believe in the deity and divinity of Jesus Christ. They believe in a resurrection. Uh, liberals deny the supernatural. They don't believe the Bible. So these are things to take into consideration. So distinctions are very important. Discernment is very important. Overgeneralizing or making blanket statements usually result in trouble. Having said that, what about a declaration? Second point. Notice that the Catechism says the Lord's Supper declares to us two things. It makes a declaration. This is simply what the Bible says, all right? The Bible says, uh, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a proclamation or a declaration made by the Lord's Supper. And what is it? Well, that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. It also declares that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he is to be worshipped. Okay? So, the Lord's Supper declares to us two things. Now, let me try to make this simple. The Lord's Supper is the gospel in pictures, all right? The Lord's Supper is the gospel in pictures, all right? The gospel is what God has done in Jesus Christ by having his own son come to shed his blood and offer his body as a substitute and a sacrifice in the place of sinners, all right? So that's the gospel. The Lord's Supper is the gospel in pictures, if you will. This is like show and tell. And parents, you should be teaching this uh, to your children. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is a good way to put this in an age-appropriate way for your children. Owen, show and tell. You ever play show and tell, Owen? Yeah? No? You don't know? All right. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. All right. Show and tell. All right. The, the gospel is presented in a show-and-tell manner. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are shown the gospel in picture form. In preaching, we hear the gospel. 
So it addresses all our senses, all right? But the gospel is declaring us uh, to us something. It's declaring us that we have all our sins forgiven for the sake of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross once for all. Let me put this clearly, all right? This is the great transfer. Here's my sin, okay? Here is the perfect obedience, sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin, who was sinless, right? Who was perfectly obedient, the only obedient son, the only human being that ever lived who was perfectly obedient. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. What's that? He takes the sin of another on himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin in order that in him we might be the righteousness of God, might be the perfect obedience of God. This is why the catechism elsewhere says it's as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner and had and have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. This is the gospel. It's a transfer of, and I hope, your sin to Jesus, his perfect obedience to you. Now, I hope you have trusted that message. That's the message, all right? It's a message of Christ's sacrifice once for all. And the Lord's Supper declares to us that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. And where is Christ now? Christ is in heaven. He is bodily ascended. And we are to worship him there. All right? Now, look at a couple of passages of Scripture with me. Because the author of Hebrews, like hammering a nail, is pounding this truth of once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ home uh, to his hearers. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He did this once for all when he offered up um, himself. Look at chapter 9. All of these chapters are dealing with the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. All right? It's a done deal. That chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. That was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. But he doesn't suffer repeatedly. Uh, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Or chapter 10, uh, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, contrasting to the daily sacrifice, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you would have to be a very good Bible student to know what the reference is here, all right? It's a reference to the architecture and the furnishings of the temple. And reference to the high priest on the Yom, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, going into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel, all right? Uh, in the Holy of Holies, there were no chairs. That was, a, that was an indication that the work was never done, right? 
Year after year, day after day, sacrifices had to be offered. Year after year, the ritual of Yom Kippur was gone through, but sins were never dealt with. It's only when Jesus Christ comes and offers his sacrifice once for all that it is finished. And the author of Hebrews says significantly, all right, he sat down, right? He sat down, signifying or indicating that his work was finished. Unlike all the priests of the daily sacrifices and the yearly sacrifice from Genesis to Malachi, as we have our Bible, all right? Nobody ever sat down because it was never finished. When Jesus offered his sacrifice, he could sit down. It was finished. To verse 17, uh, chapter 10. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is finished once for all. We sing about this in the words of a magnificent hymn. Let me open to it here. Um, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. It is finished. It is over. It is done. Sins are forgiven once for all. Which brings us to the denial. Our catechism says that the Mass teaches two things as well. It teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. Secondly, it teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. So it teaches, one, that you need the sacrifice of the Mass in order to have your sins forgiven. Pastor Dan kind of veered into this theology uh, in the past where he talked about this is based on Aristotelian philosophy. I'm not going to do that. It's for the chain of being from becoming to being. You're not a philosopher. Don't worry about it. All right. Um, but you have to you don't have your sins forgiven unless you participate in the sacramental system, including the mass. And because of transubstantiation, Pastor Dan dealt with this, bread and wine actually become body and blood and are to be worshipped or adored. Now, you may wonder, well, people don't really believe this anymore, right? I mean, this was the Reformation. It's been hundreds of years. Well, I brought with me the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, just to substantiate this assertion, all right? So yes, the Catechism was written uh, centuries ago, but this was written recently, all right? So I'm just going to read some relevant sections here. Section 1364, the sacrifice Christ offered uh, once for all on the cross remains ever-present, As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ, our Pasch or Lamb, has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. When the sacrifice is offered, 
by the priest on the altar, our redemption is carried out. 1365, because it is a memorial of Christ's offer, uh, Passover, the Eucharist, that's communion or the, the Mass, uh, uh, is also a sacrifice. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1366, its salutary power, that is, um, the Eucharist, uh, be applied to the forgiveness of sins we daily commit. 1367, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same, the same now uh, through the ministry of priests who went offered himself on the cross, only the manner of the offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. 1371. These are just articles in the Catechism. The Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed, that is, for the dead. When I was growing up, Many of you know I was raised Roman Catholic, attended eight years Jesuit education, uh, eight years uh, uh, Dominican uh, and Augustinian education in the Catholic Church. We often went to Mass for my departed, my deceased relatives, which was a Mass for the family. It was held privately, not Sunday. Sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ, but who are not yet wholly purified. Now, is that the language of the book of Hebrews? I, I don't think so, right? So that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. 1376, the Council of Trent summarizes and then uh, talks about transubstantiation. 1377, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. This is why only a priest can celebrate Mass, because he alone can change the bread and wine into flesh and blood. 1378, worship of the Eucharist <clears throat> is a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration not only during the Mass, but also outside of it, because it's in the tabernacle behind the altar, which is why people often genuflect before they go into a pew, because Christ is there. <clears throat> Exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in procession. This is the teaching, contemporary teaching, of the Catholic Church. <clears throat> Notice, though, significantly, I want to repeat for you, the Heidelberg Catechism corrects and condemns the teaching, but not the teacher. No such charity was allowed or afforded by the Roman Catholic Church. All of you here today, if you believe what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, are, according to the Council of Trent and the Second Vatican Council, accursed because you believe that and deny what the Catholic Church teaches. Now, that's tough stuff. So if you think the Catechism's being tough, read the Council of Trent, the Tridentine Anathemas, and that's not the only one. 
Now, Cornell Venema, who's a professor at Mid-America Reform Seminary, where Dan graduated from, I am on the board there, full disclosure. He's written on this. He asked this question, and I think it's a good question. Should we continue to use language like nothing but a denial or condemnable idolatry in regard to the Roman Catholic view of the Mass? Is such language consistent with the requirements of Christian love and unity? It's a charitable question, I think. He goes on and he says, it would be preferable to consider an alternative proposal that retained the substance of question and answer 80 while removing the offending language. He suggests this. Thus the Mass, in effect, denies, rather than nothing but a denial, the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and is a form of idolatry, not a condemnable idolatry. I think that's a worthy consideration, and I would hope that in ecumenical discussions that are ongoing, that's occurring. Okay. So, is this all a theological tempest in a teapot? Well, let me bring it home as we conclude this morning. Who or what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Who or what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? You see, it's not only Catholics, but many segments of Protestant church can be placing their trust in the wrong things for forgiveness of sins. Now, we've already said the Lord's Supper declares to us that it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone which can forgive sins and gain one entrance into heaven. But, of course, people trust all other kinds of things. And I ask you, who or what are you trusting in? If you're trusting in the Mass, your trust is misplaced. But if you're trusting in your parents, your grandparents, Oh, my, my parents were good, solid Christian believers. My grandparents raised me to know the Lord. If you're trusting in your parents, nobody gets into heaven on coattails. Nobody. Are you trusting in your baptism? Well, I was baptized. I talked to a lot of people like this. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I was baptized as a child. Or I was, I, I was baptized when I was five or six. Are you trusting in your baptism? Are you trusting in your faith? Can I tell you how many people I meet on the street? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I walked the aisle at a revival meeting, right? Why do you think that makes you? Well, because I believed. I was told, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Believe, believe. Can I tell you something? Faith never saved anybody. Christ saves through faith. Are you trusting in your faith? Are you trusting in a date on the calendar that said, I became a Christian on January 31st, 1999? Is that what you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your church attendance? I'm a good Christian. I go to church every Sunday. My church has two services. I'm there for both. You see? If you're trusting in anything other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross once for all, you're trusting in the wrong thing.
On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or as another hymn writer put it, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is finished. Tetelestai. Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the greatness of your love and his great willingness to come and undergo the horrors of hell on the cross that we might enjoy the glories of heaven. Help us, Father, to look only to you, to only to Jesus, and grant the Holy Spirit to guide us and guard us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.